Well, good morning, church. Uh, again, it's a pleasure to uh, worship really with all of us uh, and to our God even this morning. Uh, it's already been a joy and uh, look forward to uh, just opening up the Word of God uh, with you all uh, to Psalm 63 this morning. Uh, just been praying over this and uh, really excited to preach from the Word of God uh, to us all this morning. So let's go ahead and open up to uh, uh, Psalm 63, and I'll begin uh, with a word of prayer first before we dive into today's text. Father, you are truly our good and gracious God. You're the one who sustains us, who holds us, who um, knows our every thought and our every feeling, Lord. And we thank you that in the midst of um, all that we go through in life, we belong to you, both in body and in soul and in life and in death. We belong to truly our good and faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, That truly not even a hair can fall from our head without him knowing it. And so we thank you, Father, that you are, again, our good and gracious God. You're the one who's given us your word, who has given us uh, hope and life in the name of Christ. And we ask, Father, as we open up your word, uh, we read from Psalm 63 even this morning, that you alone, O Christ, would truly be exalted. That we would see him as the fountain of life that we just sang about for who he really is. And God, we ask that in the midst of this, your word being delivered to your people, um, that I would simply even get out of the way, that this would be uh, you shepherding your people first and foremost and caring for them and loving them in such a way that uh, no man could ever do. And so, Father, we ask that as your word is opened, um, that you would be, again, exalted and proclaimed and made much of here in this place. And we ask all of this in Christ's holy and powerful name. Amen. So imagine waking up one morning to your usual routine in life. You know, you've gone through your normal morning routine, you've cleaned yourself up, you've grabbed a bite to eat, your favorite bowl of cereal, let's say, you've uh, gathered up your belongings, and you bolt out the door on your way to work. But on your way to work, you hear this strange sound off in the distance, this strange sound of singing. It sounds like many voices even. And so you look at your watch and you're thinking, "Eh, you know, I'm actually about 10 minutes early to work anyways, might as well figure out what this sound is and why people are singing. So you get closer, you drive up, and there's this small building. And inside this building are both men and women of all ages singing together in unison. Now, don't worry, this isn't a nightmare. This isn't the Lego movie gone bad where everyone is singing the song Everything is Awesome over and over and over again. Everything is awesome, everything is awesome. No, this is actually the early church. Surprise. (laughs) You've happened upon the early church. And uh, they're singing Psalm 63, actually for the third time this week. Now, according to John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, um, Psalm 63 was actually sung daily by the early church. They considered this song even to be a kind of morning hymn that would prepare them and their hearts for the day ahead. And it would actually unify them as the body of Christ. The early church made a habit of singing this psalm in particular together, corporately. But let's be honest. For some of us in the church, singing together corporately can come across as a little contrived at times. It can maybe seem a little mechanical if we're being honest, even. It can maybe even, honestly, for some of us, be a little socially awkward. You know, we don't normally do this in other settings. Why here? 
Now, thankfully, we aren't singing Everything is Awesome, that Lego movie theme song, um, because if we did that kind of rote behavior, it would be, at the very least, <laughs> meaningless. <laughs> at the very most, it would be pretty annoying, honestly. <laughs> so the question is this, why do we sing? Why sing? Better yet, why should we sing together on Sunday mornings? Well, in Psalm 63, I want us to focus on this, because we learn that praising God through song is not something that we're simply commanded to do, but it's something that truly is, in many ways, an outburst of being satisfied in God himself. It's an outburst of being satisfied in our soul, even, with God himself. King David, the psalmist, in verse 1 of Psalm 63, begins, O God, you are my God. That in and of itself was reason enough for him to sing. But not only was that a private song for David, it was also a corporate song as he led eventually the people of Israel in this same psalm. So as we've opened up our copies of God's Word to Psalm 63 this morning, I want us to focus this morning upon three pictures that Psalm 63 paints for us. And these three pictures all lead us to praise God rightly, to have the right frame of mind about corporate worship. These three pictures are a holy place, a holy priest, and a holy people. A holy place, a holy priest, and a holy people. So let's read together from Psalm 63. I'll go ahead and lead us in in reading God's word this morning. Psalm 63, starting in verse 1, says this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of God. Now again, the first picture that this psalm paints for us is the picture of a holy place. This comes to us in verses 1 through 4, that of a holy place. See, so many of us in today's society are merely getting by in life. We're just kind of trudging through life itself in the midst of busyness. And honestly, we live in today's culture under a ton of stress. The weight can be unbearable at times. Think about it this way, for instance. The news outlets are just bombarding us with grievances of various kinds that are outside of our normal circles of influence. Things that we normally wouldn't be thinking of we're being bombarded by from the news. Even the Hurricane Florence this past week, something that didn't end up affecting us you know, directly, actually was affecting us throughout the week as we were all preparing and getting water, tons of water at that, and bread and milk and eggs, etc. 
Um, but we're affected by these things. It causes stress and pressure in our lives when, you know, days later, it hasn't directly affected many of us, at least. Social media itself has proved over the past decade to only exacerbate, in many ways, how we view other people. Um, it's caused us to compare our lives to the perceived lives of others on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, for, for those of us who still use Twitter, like myself. Um, and, and honestly, it ends up convincing a lot of us to make sacrifices unto the God of self-image. We sacrifice our time and our energy spending ourselves, expending ourselves in many ways for the sake of self-image. And think of politics. Politics within our nation have become so polarized, even in recent years, that once we're, you know, noble causes and ideas, even for us, um, they're represented by people that we aren't maybe too fond of. And it can become uh, kind of this matter of, well, I'm a little discouraged now by what's happening. And again, it causes grievances. But see, amidst a sea of voices telling us what we are to believe and how we are to live, our fallen sinful condition here in this life is to seek, in a good way, answers for these true dilemmas going on. But we often try to find that apart from God himself. The hard times in life can cause us to struggle in the noble ambition of glorifying God and enjoying him forever fully. As believers, we are summoned to live as the body of Christ here on this earth and to gather for worship. And we may actually, in a very right way, look at this place right here as a kind of holy place, a holy place that has been set apart for the public worship of God. But in the midst of being inundated with the diversions of the world, that the world places before our eyes, never mind our own busyness, things that we are invested in in our own lives, you may have asked yourself this question before, as I know I have even this past week. In spite of my feelings, in spite of how I'm feeling right now, how can I praise God? How can I worship God? Believers over the past 3,000 years have considered Psalm 63 to be a kind of wilderness psalm. The psalm's poetic language vividly paints a portrait of a man who has reached the very end of his life, the point of desperation, where nothing else matters in all of life. All of the world's goods, its treasures, its novelties, they've worn out. They've run their course, and they've left the poet's soul in want. But where did the poet, in this case David, where did the poet find satisfaction? Let's look at the answer right here. And it comes to us in verse 1 of Psalm 63. Because this verse is so important. Everything hinges upon this opening line. King David, in the midst of his wilderness, says this, O God, you are my God. Ironically enough, this is only just two words in the Hebrew language. Elohim Eli, God, my God. God, my God. And again, everything hinges upon this. Though these are such small words, God, my God, such a small confession truly is nothing small for David. Because see, really, he was attesting his utter and complete dependency upon the living God, the God who gives life, even in the midst of both a literal wilderness, but also a figurative one. 
So the question is here for us. You know, what led David to not only write this psalm, but what was going on in his life? What brought him to this point of desperation, this place, as it were, that we see in verse 1 through 4? Context-wise, it's important for us to talk about this, but 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19 paint the picture of what's going on in David's life at this time. See, David's son, Absalom, had rose up in insurrection against his father. Before that, in chapters 13 and following, Absalom's own sister, Tamar, had been defiled. She had spent her days ever since that moment of being defiled in mourning, in loss of her innocence. And Absalom was in many ways rightfully taken aback by that, angered by it. But see, we don't know from the story if justice itself had truly been served at that moment, immediately following this moment in Tamar's own life. But what's important to note from the text is that both David and Absalom ended up grieving their losses over Tamar differently and apart from each other. It's something that's really important to note. See, David had kind of come to peace with what had gone on. We don't know exactly how he went about that. But Absalom, who spent his time alone letting his anger fester, it led him to the point of extreme hatred. He ended up taking matters into his own hands and ended up killing Anon, one of his stepbrothers who actually was the one who defiled his sister Tamar. However, Absalom's hatred itself had not been satisfied. He wasn't just ready to let bygones be bygones and let things stop there. If anything, his hatred only um, began to fester as well, and he became a sort of bloodthirsty man in the midst of all this. He became so bloodthirsty, in fact, that he ended up calculating a way to even overthrow his father's reign as king. And he did so through much manipulation and politicking and violence. In 2 Samuel 15, we read of David's weeping for his son's actions as David himself was forced to flee away from Jerusalem from his reign of terror that Absalom had put into place. David eventually found himself with nowhere left to hide except for this wilderness desert where we find this psalm taking place. It was actually, ironically enough, even the same desert that um, God had brought him to when he was fleeing from Saul just years prior. See, imagine yourself in David's position. At this point, if you're David, you've experienced all kinds of loss and trauma and heartache and insurmountable stress. Your eyes have become even dry with weeping at this point in your life, and you're found taking shelter in a desert wasteland with just simply maybe a few of his friends at best. But in this very moment, David, he cried out to God. He says this again, God, my God, earnestly I am seeking you. My soul is thirsting for you. My flesh is fainting for you, as in this very dry and weary land where there is no water. But look with me at verses 2 through 4 and see how David resolves this fierce tension going on in his life. Beginning in verse 2, it says this, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips can't help but praise you. 
in the midst of the wilderness, God had actually given David grace. He gave him grace to recall the relationship that God had made with his people, Israel. See, David belonged to God, and God was David's God. It was a life-giving covenant, a relationship in the midst of even extreme loss. David had suffered the loss of all things, and yet he recognized in this moment, by God's grace, that really God alone was the one who had brought him into the wilderness for the purpose of worship. And while David was still, um, even in the midst of fleeing from Absalom, uh, think of it this way. In 2 Samuel 15, 30, um, he first went up to the Mount of Olives. Even as he was fleeing, he paused. He looked over the city of Jerusalem. He looked at God's sanctuary, which we see here in, in uh, Psalm 63, verse 2. And he looked upon this sanctuary, and he could only think of, wow, God, you are great, beholding his power and his glory. See, that might have been a holy place for David in years gone by, but here in this desert wasteland, um, it had become kind of a holy place of source for him, where the Holy One of Israel was meeting and ministering to the helpless king, the deposed king at that of Israel. Now, life itself is something that we rightfully cherish. Um, this is why we invest in stocks. This is why we look at insurance and, and you know, think of what would be a good package for me at this point in our lives. We invest in people and places around us, rightfully, because life, again, is something that we cherish. But David knew that the unending and the steadfast and the covenantal love of God is better than life. And therefore, he couldn't help but praise God through song and even lifting up his hands in worship. David sung even in the midst of his wilderness. Communion with God is better than all the riches of this world, even if that communion takes place in the lowest of all conditions. And God had pursued David and met with David in the lowest of all conditions. What a picture of the gospel, my friends. What a picture. That God would condescend to meet David in his lowliness and we know from the gospel that God has condescended to meet us in the midst of our lowliness as well. John 1, verses 14 and following tell us this, that Christ became flesh and dwelt among us as the true dwelling place or holy place of God with man. And we have therefore seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. See, holy communion with God in the lowest of places is reason enough for singing. And that brings us to our second point. And our second and third points are going to be a little shorter, by the way. But our second point, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> but our second point this morning comes to us from verses 5 through 8. Uh, this is Psalm 63, 5 through 8. In verses 1 through 4, we saw that the first picture was that of a holy place. And the second picture here in verses 5 through 8 is that of a holy priest. A holy priest. So how does God meet us exactly in the midst of our fallenness and in our brokenness, in this condition? He meets us with himself, first and foremost. See, the grace of God is this, that God himself is our satisfaction. Christ himself is our high priest. Psalm 63, in verses 5 through 6, they say this to us. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, what might not be obvious to all of us is that there's actually a priestly language going on here in these verses. It's a priestly language. See, earlier in the psalm, there was mention of water um, and, and this holy dwelling place or communion with God and, and how God himself is better than this water. God is our living water, as it were. Same thing is going on with this food that it talks about. Uh, in verse 5, there is mention of food. It's almost as if David was a little hungry out there in the desert, right? Um, but the fat and the rich food that is talked about here is in many ways in the context of corporate worship. It's a spiritual food that this is all pointing to. See, David's heart was met by thankfulness um, because even though he was a sinner in many respects, he knew that God alone could forgive sin and cause our hearts to rejoice because God himself is the one who feeds us and nourishes us in life. One of the types of sacrifices in the Old Covenant that would take place at the temple, by the way, um, is that of a thanksgiving offering. Uh, In this type of offering, there was a priest who would take the animals that were being offered, and he would take half of them, sacrifice the other half, and then the other half right there was actually used as a meal of sorts. And the priest and the people would dine upon that literal food together. The holy priest who communes with us, in other words, is better than the food itself because God is meeting with his people. See, David likely had this kind of picture of a holy priest who would eat with his people in mind. He speaks of a soul satisfaction which can only be brought to him by God, his God. And he speaks of being satisfied more than just literal food and and by literal drink, but by spiritual food and spiritual drink here. And this is what led him to continue praising God even while upon his bed at night and in the middle of the night. We see that even here in verses 6 and following. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now in our society, we generally live in a great deal of peace and security. We go to sleep pretty easily at night for the most part. But when you think about it, the nighttime itself is actually the time that we are the most vulnerable. If we're being honest, that's when we often have our most anxious thoughts even. Things from our past might haunt us, and worries about the future might come to us and come to the forefront of our mind. Uh, Things in our subconscious become more aware to us. And even as we sleep, uh, physically speaking, we're actually totally vulnerable. You know, we're open to attack, as it were. But rather than be distracted by all the grievances that David could have been dreaming about and thinking of as he was sleeping— He mentions that he resolved to praise God even while upon his bed, even while he was most vulnerable in the middle of the night, and to actually think God's thoughts after him. (laughs) The idea of thinking God's thoughts after him, by the way, could be a whole different sermon. We'll get into all that right now, but it's uh, really, I think, powerful to also keep in mind. So let's look at verses 7 through 8. Here's the reason, the resolve for why David could rest peacefully, even in the midst of such turmoil that he was going through. He says this, God, you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand, it upholds me. See, church, our help is none other than Christ Jesus. Like we just sang about, and Jesus, lover of my soul, we rest in the shadow of Christ's wings, as it were. He is our holy priest who prays for us without stopping, unceasingly, and keeps watch over us as the shepherd of our souls. 
So believer, do you know that Christ loves you and that he smiles upon you because you belong to him? Pastor Robert Murray McShane said this years ago to his own people that he was shepherding even. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, such um, meekness and grace though, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. This brings us to our final point, which is even shorter than the second one. Um, And that comes to us from verses 9 through 11. This is the idea of a holy people. A holy people. In verses 9 through 11, we see that our final picture is that of a holy people. And David, in the midst of this distress that he was going through, knew that God is the one who would bring final justice to his people. And he will at last, on the very last day, restore all things back to how it should be. In verses 9 through 11, we read this. But those who seek to destroy my life, they shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, he shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, because the mouths of liars will be stopped. See, David is speaking here of God's dealing with our enemies, all his and our enemies, as the people of God. The language here is very poetic, though, and I think it's important to note this, that these are the enemies of God, and they will be put away with for good. God will win in the end. No matter what we might be going through, we can take assurance in this. See, the words given over to the power of the sword that we read in the English, literally in the Hebrew, it has this idea of being intentionally poured out. It's like a liquid almost that has this picture in mind. They're intentionally poured out. God will deal with these people in a very intentional way, uh, his enemies. Upon the sword, though, it says, which is in many ways representative of justice. Uh, And much could be said about that. But needless to say, the end of the wicked um, is essentially that they become like dog food. (laughs) You know, food for the jackals, it says which is also, again, poetic language in many ways, that they would be put to utter and complete shame. God will deal with his enemies in the exact way that they are meant to be dealt with. And he'll bring justice where there's injustice, even against us as the body of Christ. David's point, though, is that God will surely bring salvation for his people. Even in the midst of our own desert wastelands like David, which, by the way, he did escape from, (laughs) so spoiler alert, um, We are promised final justice. We are promised peace from God our Savior. We are the people of God, and Christ is the head of his people, his holy people at that. See, upon the cross, Christ took our sin and guilt and shame, and he bore them and owned them for himself. The Holy One lived in our place, died in our place, and was resurrected to give us newness of life. When you think about it, As I was just reading about the enemies idea, we ourselves were once enemies of God, totally undeserving of his sheer love and mercy toward us in Christ. We were once children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 tells us even, but we have now been redeemed for God's glory, purchased by God because of his great love for us, and purchased by the very blood of Christ that was poured out 
upon the sword of God's justice. See, my friends, this is reason enough for us to sing with joy. God has dealt with our sin and our shame in the most kind way toward us. So as we conclude, I want us to think of the wonder of the gospel. We saw in Psalm 63 three pictures which cause us to sing, and they were a holy place, a holy priest, and a holy people. See, this very morning, God has gathered us together, ironically enough, to a kind of holy place to worship a holy priest because we are God's holy people. And though we are sinful, we are also far more loved than we could ever even imagine. So as we sing together, we truly give account of God's faithfulness in each of our lives. As we sing together, we pronounce that God alone deeply satisfies each one of us. And as we sing together, we declare the mystery of the good news of Christ to each other. In closing, as the hymn writer William Gatsby once wrote in regard to the same matter, the gospel itself brings good tidings, glad tidings indeed, to mourners in Zion who want to be freed. From sin and Satan and Mount Sinai's flame, the good news of salvation through Jesus the Lamb. And on that note, let's come to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that we who were once enemies of God, who had no reason to be saved, you decided to show great love and mercy toward us. God, we thank you that we have every reason to sing because we are now your people. And you have brought us by your providence even to this holy place to worship you, not out of any kind of thing that we could ever bring before you, God, but um, simply because of your goodness and your love toward us. We thank you, God, that you, um, in Psalm 63, showed much mercy toward David, who himself was not perfect, and yet a recipient of your great love. And like David, Lord, we are your people, and we've been led to worship um, because of you who has called us. Uh, and so, Lord, we ask that as we uh, close our time in worship, even this morning, that this would not simply be a thing that we do Sunday mornings, but it would truly be something that leads us to worship you throughout the week. Um, out of sheer love and, and joyful bliss over your salvation you've given to us, Lord. We thank you for all that you are and for your many reasons you've given us to sing unto you. And we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.